welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. So when I was a doctor, I was one of those people that used tech to the kind of maximum ability that I could. I'd constantly be using my iPhone and various apps and an iPad to do as much as I possibly could, whether it was like taking photos of stuff and OCR engines to put stuff from A to B, whether it was collating feedback from teaching sessions and beaming that to the cloud and doing various bits and bobs and managing a whole teaching program. I was doing as much as I possibly could to maximize tech. And my guest today on this episode is Mohammed, and he runs a company called Patients Know Best. Now he is one of those people too. And in his career, he has always been at the forefront of technology and what it could be used for. And he finds himself now as the CEO of a company that is uniting health records for patients. It's bringing all the information that's all over the place in the healthcare system straight to you and in one place. Now, I talked to Mohammed about loads of cool stuff, his whole journey, everything that he's done that got him to this point. Um, but he's got some really cool philosophies on the way that he runs his company. He's fully remote, has been for absolutely years before it was cool, before COVID made it cool or necessity, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think Mohammed is a really progressive leader, a very progressive individual, in fact. And one of the things I actually, actually spoke to him about was fatherhood. And as I look to get married and have a family, uh, speaking to Mohammed about what he sees as this tension between do I pick between being a good father or do I pick being a good startup founder? He kind of uh, well makes it clear that he doesn't think that that is a real choice and that you can indeed actually do both. Of course, every individual is different, every situation is different. But speaking to him, I don't know, it just gave me a few extra perspectives and, and things about what it means to be a father a leader, a CEO, all of those things and how to how to balance all those things effectively. So um, not only that, we obviously talk about the company, we talk about the space that he's in and everything that's going on there. And so, yeah, obviously uniting health records into one place, incredibly useful. NHS app and other things are uh, on the way to it a bit more than it used to be, but still an incredibly difficult job and lots of players in that space. But patients know best, obviously being one of the oldest and one of the best. So um, yeah, hope you enjoy this one. Mohammed, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? I'm really good, James. Uh, long time listener, uh, delighted first time caller. So thank you for having me. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And thank you. Um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Mohammed? Where are you based? Uh, I'm at home in uh, Cambridge. Very nice. Very nice. Um, how's the weather up in Cambridge at the minute? We've had a heck of a heat wave, haven't we? It's been absolutely delightful. Um, how's it been for you guys up there? I'm, I'm really pleased with the weather today. It's, uh, it's the right combination. I'm... Um, it's shorts without rain, so I'm happy. Mm. Oh, perfect. The absolute dream. I tend to wear shorts from sort of, I'd say, I'd say Feb February, March is when I'll start cracking out the shorts and then I won't put them away until like November. So it's a real, it's a, it's a real <laughs> shorts year for me. Yeah. And the, be the beauty, and I know that we're going to talk about remote work, but the one of the beauties of home working for me is that you're generally only, only visible from the waist up, which means that my comfort level yeah. is I absolutely ideal <laughs> for the work that I do. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad that you've mentioned shorts. That's, uh, that's perfect. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to keep it business up top. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, Mohammed, yeah, absolute pleasure having you on. And thank you for saying that, long time listener. Yeah, it's um, it, we we had a chat, didn't we, at the uh, one of the recent Google events that um, yeah, you have you've yes. been listening and and listening to a few few episodes and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's it's great to have you on. And I mean, I'm surprised that I haven't had you on previously. To be honest, I'm surprised that it's been so long since we've really connected in this way because patients know, patients know best. I mean. What, what a company and like how what, you've been around for for so long to achieve such scale and i mean it's a real labor of love isn't it like building a health tech company but and to, to do it for so long and to achieve what you've achieved is incredibly impressive um and it's a company that i've known ever since i think my initial forays into health tech when i was even even before I joined my accelerators, so while I was just about right, left nice. clinical practice, I can remember being in a meeting actually at, I think it was Chelsea and Westminster or CW Plus, the charity for Chelsea and Westminster. That, and it, this, this must have been what, two th- oh, I mean, what would it have been like 2015, 16, something like that, like talking about... Mm-hmm patients know best like a heck of a heck of a company you've got and so for, for us to hear your story will be will be excellent or for me to hear it certainly so i'm not going to stand in your way here Mo, but i'm gonna let you tell your story so by all means how do you get to being the ceo of patients know best and uh, everything that you've achieved from there thank you james and i i hadn't realized about you and Chow west um next month is our 15 year anniversary so we start in 2008 um, and i would like um as now you're doing videos on youtube i would like to Reassure listeners, I used to have hair when we started, so um, it's been a long slog to, to go through it. I, I'll just tell you my personal story because I think that's relevant to why I started Patients Know Best in the professional part. Uh, so I'm originally from Bahrain. Um, I came to Cambridge when I was 10. Uh, I have a genetic immune deficiency, so uh, it's uh, literally one in a million. Uh, when I see my doctor, uh, he panics, doesn't know what to do, and I tell him, you know, my immunologist said this, my ENT said that, and they think you might want to do the following. And then he does it. I was doing some research in the States about giving patients their medical records. I was doing that for my company, uh, that's, they're my employer and my customers or hospitals. And when I wrote that book, I realized that my doctor doesn't trust me because I've gone to all the appointments. My doctor trusts me, uh, uh, sorry, my doctor doesn't trust me because um, I went to medical school he trusts me because I've gone to all the appointments. Uh, so that was a light bulb moment for me that there are millions of people like me who need uh, their information, but who the healthcare system needs to have the information for. Um, that when my doctor taught me to inject myself, uh, he didn't just um, save my life in terms of giving me the right treatment. He didn't just give me a life in terms of giving me independence. He also freed up a lot of uh, hospital capacity when I could inject myself and look after myself. And the same thing it is with information. When you give people information, um, I know firsthand that uh, it helps them. It gives them agency, empowerment and so on. Uh, But it saves money as well as raising quality. Um, And so that's um, that's the sort of personal knowledge that I had behind Patients Know Best. Um, The professional bit is... um, I'm basically a geek, so I went through medical school writing software. Um, I trained a physician as a programmer. Uh, and then I always knew I wanted to start a company. I just didn't know 
what the problem was that I would sort of devote my life to. So what I then tried to do is I would get lots of programming jobs and I would um, write books because I learned by writing. Uh, and I was trying to do them as quickly as possible until I would find the problem that I would want to focus on. Uh, and so I, I started off being obsessed with them. Um, personal digital assistants, which is sort of small computers that are now smartphones nowadays. Um, but my my big light bulb moment was when I was asked in 2007 to write a book for my hospital customers about how do you share medical records with patients. Uh, I've just been obsessed with that problem since then, basically. Wow. Heck of a story that. I want to ask you about well, learning through writing you've taken that to quite an extreme there. <laughs> like when people say they learn by writing, often people say they'll listen to a lecture and they'll take notes. You write books to learn. Now that's a fascinating, that's a, that's a fascinating way to learn something by writing a book, because I imagine that, uh, you certainly don't do that without really deeply understanding something because they say don't they that if you want if you want to learn something teach it and that almost is the the written version of that isn't it to to know and understand the problem enough to be able to write <laughs> write the book on it so when you say you had programming jobs and wrote books on some of those concepts what were some of those concepts what were you writing about so, uh, and just to tell you why I went to medical school. So I read, read a book called um, Chaos um, when I was in A-levels. And this wasn't about the NHS. This was about nonlinear dynamics as a science. So the, the weather is a chaotic system and described meteorologists who learned how to program to simulate the weather. The economy is a chaotic system and described economists who learned how to program to simulate the economy. And then it said at one point, the body is full of chaotic systems but I couldn't find any doctors in there who learned how to program. So I thought, I'll go do that. I'll go to medical school to learn how to program so I can model the human body. And so I basically got jobs um, every summer holiday during medical school when the professors find out I could program. And that was really interesting because for the professor of radiology to receive a, a heart conduction simulation from me, he had to teach me how the heart worked. And for the radiology professor to get radiology software from me, he had to teach me how radiology worked. So I was basically trading my programming skills as a medical student for professor teaching me one to one. Uh, so, so I learned medicine very rapidly. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you just see firsthand that just a little bit of technology knowledge uh, in healthcare in general or the NHS in particular could make a really big difference. Um, and so I just kept on finding problems. When I did my uh, house job, Palm Pilot's basically 100 pound devices, sort of computers when were very disruptively priced and they're the size of your pocket and they last a week in battery life. So basically perfect for a house officer doing ward rounds in terms of form factor. So uh, first of all, I began using it, doing all the ward round notes, um, which often meant double documenting because I'd have to do the paper version and the, but I wanted to see if that was more efficient. And then I convinced other doctors and nurses to go and buy their own Palm Pilot for £100. And I would write software so we can all do handovers using that. Uh, so, so in that year, um, 100 of us paid our own money, uh, shared the information encrypted, um, and just got much more efficient. And at the end of it, when the CIO found out that I'd done this, he said, this would have cost £5 million to build. And also, no one would have approved building it, but you've actually just convinced everyone to pay 100 quid and get going. 
So I thought that was really interesting for um, how you can transform healthcare delivery by the people doing the delivery, right? Without waiting for a big central decision. And I thought I could write a book about this so other people can do this. So I went to all these publishers and said, um, I think uh, Palm Pilots are really big in healthcare. We should write a, I, I should write a book about this. And they all said, I, I, we don't think there's a market. Um, and so as I finished my house job in July, I got uh, so irritated by what they were saying. Um, I just remember one night thinking, I bet it's not hard to publish a book. I, I bet their job is not that difficult. So I read a book on how to publish a book. And then I set up a publishing company, wrote the book, sold it within three months. Basically, the first customer was a doctor in Pennsylvania. The second one was the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. This is when PayPal was just launching and so on. Um, and then because I'd self-published it and all these people began reviewing it and it got into BMJ, then Wiley came back and said, actually, it looks like there is a market and they bought the rights and took it from there. So a, a lot of um, a, a lot of what you do in entrepreneurship is actually irritation that you just know something's right. Can't you just do it? And other people won't do it. Just get irritated and say, I bet it's not that hard. Um, but that, that's how I got started in, in, in writing the books. Fascinating. So I have an important question here, which is yeah. when you were initially speaking to people about the potential for using a Palm Pilot, which I can remember Palm Pilots and those PDAs, <laughs> like the, the personal digital assistant. Yeah. When you were initially speaking to people about this and talking about writing software so that you could all hand over between Palm Pilots to each other and you can do all this digitally, bearing in mind that when I was doing my house jobs, i.e. F1, F2, that I was using an OCR engine, taking photos of notes as I wrote them by the yes. bedside and then using that to update Rio, which was the mental health electronic patient <laughs> record. Yes. Bearing in mind that me doing that years later was just as innovative and frightening to people that I'd even consider doing that. Uh, I'm intrigued as to what the, I suppose the, the reaction to you doing that was like, and you talk, you talked a lot about adoption bottom up there adoption by, by, by people that just wanted a problem solved that you could convince that a hundred quid was a good use of their own money to actually just get this done and sort of circumventing that centralized nonsense for, for want of a better <laughs> phrase. Um, can you talk to me about like how you practically went about that and got that done and what people's reactions were like? Sure. Um, first of all, James, it's really nice that you recognize PDAs. Um, most of the people in the inpatients know best when I tell them about PDAs, uh, they just look like, okay, granddad, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so it's nice that you've actually, you, you do remember this stuff and did actually happen. I was 16. Um, well, I can remember. I was 16. So, okay. Uh, wonderful. Um, so, my family's um, fundamental belief is that the uh, people who are doing the work are the ones you need to work with and that technology is um, allows you to just get on with it and do it rather than waiting for a big central decision. Um, and so all my approaches um, 
in life on, on the wards, uh, in clinics and so on, uh, has been to bypass the central approval and just get something working. And then after it's working, go back and um, tell the, the central approach. And what's happened over the years is I've gotten better at the going back to the center and not embarrassing them in the process. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's just the point at which I can say, right, can we scale this up? Um, so yeah. as you were talking um, to me about Chell West in 2016, um, that point for them was um, we'd been deploying patients in their best for several years, deliberately, quietly in individual clinics in northwest London. And when the central team came and said, we heard you're doing something, show us what you do. And I showed them PKB and they said, well, we want to do it for all 2.4 million people, but prove to us that it works. I said, well, actually, they're doing it in St. Mark's and they're doing it in Chell West in two departments, which you don't know about. But they've been releasing test results for over three years each for several hundred patients. And the test results are going real time. Uh, so any objection you will have heard about, it's dangerous, it can't be done. I'm telling you it's mm -hmm. been done. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's my that's the way I operate in uh, enjoy operating on the mm -hmm. wards. So what I did um, in the Palm Pilots on the wards is first of all, I um uh, I I took the test results um, off the you know the old CRT green screen on the wards. I was supposed to write it on a piece of paper for for the next morning's house job. And I just did a very simple thing, which is, first of all, I would write it on my phone. Uh, and then I would, um, I had my, uh, my Palm Pilot, I'm sorry. That was in mm. one pocket. In another pocket, I had a printer that was the same size as the Palm Pilot. <laughs> so I'd write the notes on my Palm Pilot, and then I would print it and stick what I printed out into the notes. And so basically, over time, all these people were seeing in the notes perfectly printed Beautiful. Um, blood results, right? And they were much clearer to look at and so on. Um, and, and then I also, um, every time I had to call someone, you know, you look at, you try and find out what number to call them on, so on switchboard, um, I would write it on my Palm Pilot. So I had it in my address book. And so people would come to me and say, are you the guy that prints? And I said, yes. And I said, you know, if you want this, so I can, I will give you all the records I've got. If you pay a hundred pounds for your Palm Pilot and I'll give you all the phone numbers in the hospital, I'll just beam them to you. Um, so you can have the address book without having to look them up. So I'll just save you time. Um, and so um, I had a variety of um, successes. The techies obviously were the ones who picked it up first. But my big breakthrough was um, I worked for the surgeon, this orthopedic surgeon. And my year was the first year that the doctors, the consultants weren't allowed to choose their house officer anymore. Um, suffice to say, this surgeon would never have chosen me. Um, I, I remember once, because he was such a sportsman, and I'm so not a sportsman, <laughs> um, he, he was having to sort of, it was really awkward for everyone. However, one day I had a brainwave and I said to him, Mr. Parker, would you like me to keep your golf scores on, your, on a Palm Pilot? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I built a database for him and then he bought one a week later. And Mr. Parker, who was completely non-techy, the practical man's practical man began telling everyone to get a palm pilot um, to the extent that one one week um, this young lady came into A&E. She was uh, doing work experience for a week um, and I sort of began showing her. She was just shadowing for a bit and I, be, and I began doing my palm pilot. She goes, are you Mo? I said, yes. 
She goes, not you. My dad, Mr. Parker, won't stop talking about you and your <laughs> campaign. So a lot of it is about um, uh, finding uh, that the hardest people to convince are the big breakthrough. And if you talk their language about what they find interesting, which which isn't technology, that's what I found interesting. What he found interesting was golf. So if you mm. if you make them happy, you show them that the technology helps their problem. Uh, then they are the influential ones. They are the evangelists. Yeah. Uh, and so a, a lot of what I do in every technology I pick up is find those people, um, mm. which is often just by listening very carefully yeah. to what different human beings find interesting. Yes. Now, that approach is really interesting. And many entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, entrepreneurial, intrapreneurial people listening will relate to that. Yes. But what I will say yes from personal experience is that that approach carries risk. And you mentioned at the start that you're much better now at not embarrassing when you go back to say that, Hey, this has already been done actually. Um, can you talk to any examples of that approach not going so well and what you learned? Because again, thinking of the people listening that might be earlier in their careers that are, and again, another really relatable bit, by the way, for me is using the technology that's available at the time to its absolute maximum value, slightly off label that you're using the tech, but beyond what it's sort of supposed to be used for. I think that is definitely a trait that I can relate to. And I, I know plenty of technologists and entrepreneurs will be similar. Um, that, that's incredibly relatable. But again, using tech off label in inverted commas to, to do something it's not meant to versus, you know, the practicalities of actually doing it in a healthcare environment it all carries risk, not least uh, to your point about embarrassing people that are the, the, and all that sort of thing. But I don't, can you, can you, I guess, talk to examples of that not going so well and what you learned? The example I gave you of writing the book about giving patients their medical records, yeah. uh, that was when I was working in a management consultancy in the USA. So our customers were um, hospital CXOs, you know, chief information yeah. officer, chief executive officer, and so on. And I was hired to run the chief information officer consulting practice and my job was a research job so the the promise we made was that if you're a cio you can call me ask me any question and my team will get you an answer within six weeks so it was everything from you know how do i integrate four surgery systems to how do i buy a pack system anything it was it was amazing learning the first day i joined that company everyone said you're that doctor who can program maybe you can help us because we don't have a knowledge management system. Um, the, the company is full of incredibly, obviously bright people, but very few management consultancies that actually had knowledge. You know, most management consultancies just ask you for knowledge. These guys were super experts on running a, a US hospital, but they had no way of managing the knowledge. Um, it was basically passed down a sort of apprenticeship model in different practices, and it was just um, tens of thousands of Word documents. Can you help? Um, so at the time, I, the technology I was obsessed with was wikis. Um, mm. And so what I did was I went to um, my boss and I said, um, can you approve me paying $5 per user per month for five, you know, my five colleagues and I to have a hosted wiki so we can document our CIO consulting practice knowledge? Um, and he kind of shooed me away saying, just it's not this conversation's already cost more than $5. So just go ahead and do it. <laughs> Um, if you think it's useful, see, see see how it goes. 
um, Eric was fantastic like that. He just trusted people. Mm. So I, I spent $25 a month and um, me and my colleagues began just documenting everything we do. And over the following uh, month, other uh teams who occasionally need CIO knowledge would come to me and say, oh, do you know such, such and such fact? And I say, sure, let me show you what we've written in our wiki. And they would say, oh, I want that. How do I get that? And I'd say to them, if you can get me $5 per user per month for your team from your boss, I'll set it up for you and I'll train you how to do it. So within six months, um, I trained 300 people. So the entire research team and I, I'd, I'd also trained um, people who weren't in the research team. So I trained the secretaries, they had their own wiki. Um, I trained marketing people, they had their own wiki and so on. Um, and, and I loved it because that wiki, every day it would email the administrator of the wiki, me, mm. every single page that had been written the previous day. So every day I would wake up and I would read what everyone in every team had done. Wow. And so if, if you're a nerd, this is just fantastic, right? So what do the secretaries do? I didn't know. What does marketing do? I don't know. I, I was basically in the research team, but now I knew. I realized at a certain point that I knew more than anybody else in the company did about the company. I knew more than the CEO did, for example, because I was getting that daily update. And at a certain point when the IT department had realized this has happened because it had been bought with departmental discretionary budget, not with central IT department, the CIO got annoyed because he now had a data security problem. So, I mean... As it happened, we did secure it and it was a good system, but he didn't know that. He couldn't know that. Mm. It was done without him. Uh, and then the culture of the company uh, was, um, I mean, every company is run differently and that company was extremely successful. They they knew exactly what, how to perform and deliver. But part of the culture they built up was more secrecy. So the people at senior level didn't share things um, with uh, lower down. Um, and in fact, and, and what I'd done was to reverse that. Now people know they were down knew more than the people at the top of the company. And so they really didn't like it. Um, but and, and I'd done it all behind them. And it got what really annoyed them was at the point they realized they it was so well adopted, they couldn't get rid of it. And that really wow. the way they found out about it really frustrated them. Wow. So um, I learned two things. One, um, how do you run a company as it because i now know how all the different functions work and when i started pkb with just me um i created wikis for every function so that every at, at some point in the future i'll find someone who knows how to do this better than i do i frankly anyone in the world and that person will have a wiki of everything i know and they'll build it out and so i learned how to do that uh, how to build a company from seeing a successful model but i also learned don't piss off <laughs> people you don't need to piss off um yes. so just there, there's um there's a polite way to work there's a what you want to do is give them something they can build on and uh, rather than uh, show them something that they've been failing on mm. um and so that 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 was the lesson i learned as um mm. uh, as i was thinking of starting my own company mm. fascinating that you're talking about wikis there and not because wikis are a, a a, f a fantastically complex technology. In fact, it's interesting because quite the opposite. What do you think and feel about technology where we're at now and the place of things like wikis and these more kind of basic 
ways of doing things like knowledge capture, etc. How, how do you feel about the way that technology has actually progressed when it comes to the basics of running a company um, from where it was then and think like really where you were then with building wikis for that company versus where we are now? What do you what do you feel about that progression? The tools today are much better than back then. And uh, the consumerization of IT, i.e. an individual employee can buy something without waiting for the CIO, means that uh, the tools have a selection pressure to cooperate. So I don't have to buy from Microsoft for everything to work together or, or actually to not work together. Um, I can buy from this innovative company before anyone's understood uh, on the bet that by the time I'm deep into using it, that company will have had enough traction from others to also integrate with other companies. So I can be an early adopter and that is a competitive advantage for us against other companies um, in, in their size. So, um, and, and I will tell you that um, my colleagues at the company are, are usually exacerbated by the number of shiny things that I bring in, but, but I do mm. have a plan and I do genuinely try and join them up together. But it is really, it's that line from Eric, which is this conversation has cost me more than $5 already is the key. It's that um, humans are much more expensive than software. And so every time I can find something to be automated yes. or made easier, just get, I mean, someone in the NHS needs to hear this, right? Um, but that is about respecting people's time. That, that's, that's what we're going for. Um, but the tech is only a small part of it. Understanding how to use the tech, that's the really hard part. So um, it, what's live right now is the conversation about people in traditional offices of, uh, well, you know, we tried COVID, we tried working from home, the evidence is in, working from home doesn't work. Can you all please come back? Mm -hmm. um, what they're saying is um, working from home doesn't work. What they're actually proving is I haven't done working from home properly. I haven't done, mm -hmm. I haven't been trained. I don't know how to make it work. Um, so there's thoughtful things you have to do if you're going to work distributed. And we all start from working from home in 2008 and wikis were a big part of it, right? That everything I know, I have to document explicitly so that anybody else can read it asynchronously so that we don't have to be in the same place at the same time for you to know what I know. And so that's not a... That's not a workaround. That's not something you do just to offset the damage of not being in the office. That's a scale up technology. But you need to everyone from day one to know this is how we're operating. Uh, we're not doing documents. We're doing wikis. We're not doing meetings. We're doing documentation. Um, we're being explicit about everything that we're doing because uh, that trains people up much more quickly. That um, scales across geographies and time zones and people's personal lives much more quickly. And, and frankly, uh, you know, going back to learning by writing, when you have to write something down, you realize how little you understand it. <laughs> uh, and then now you've got to do the work. Um, so you can't just rely on, well, I've said it in the meeting. Go on, guys, why aren't you doing it? No, actually, I've got to write it down. And clearly, I haven't understood it. I'm going to have to do the work so that 10 people don't have to do the work of figuring out what on earth it was that I meant. Uh, but those are cultural habits. These are not technological barriers. Mm. So 
you mentioned cultural habits there and well culture it sounds like at the heart of your value framework is respect for people and particularly respect for people's time it sounds like that is that is relatively central to your framework and that you've been as a company allowing work from or say allowing like people work from home or have worked from home since 2008 you talked about it being a positive thing for various reasons you talked about it requiring effort on your part again the respect of people in their time uh that some people have to do things that are perhaps out of the ordinary for them i.e documenting things properly to make sure that the message is understood that allows you to then do things asynchronously. You talked about certain shifts from documents to wikis, from meetings to documentation. Um, I want to talk about patients know best in more detail in a second, but now that you've mentioned this, let's talk about it now. So what advice would you give to people or what would you say to those people that are in the banks that are insisting people go back, the large companies that are insisting on two days a week, three days a week to uh, instill culture. It's funny because I've seen a lot of these TikToks and memes and uh, like Instagram reels of like um, like a, a speech of their of their boss or someone saying, um, you know, we need to come back into the to the office for culture, and then it cuts to the office, which is just this like grey <laughs> yes. void of anybody yeah. speaking to each other and like half the desks are full because it's half the teams that are meant to be in. And then the word culture, this is the culture, just <laughs> this is the culture I've come in for, just pops up on screen. And it's just like, it, it, it is a, it is quite a, a tired narrative, like culture. Yeah. Cause I, it's interesting that you've been doing this since 2008, because like, I, I sort of feel like if you, if you as a business owner or as, as a business leader, want people to come to the office well first of all ask yourself why and secondly like make it useful to come to the office make it roi positive to come to the office make it enjoyable and joyous for people to come to the office and they will um but crucially make it ROI positive so what what is it there are, so you must have done a lot of this thinking. You must have quite a lot of views on this if, you, if you've been doing it since 2008 and you've got this value system that, that means that this is what you do full stop. So talk to me about remote work versus office work, remote work versus scale. And is it actually a positive rather than just that we're avoiding the negative? Is it actually like, well, this enables scale? So you, you talk to me about remote work. Yes. So uh, I'll I just give you a quick observation, James. So before COVID, a lot of the people who would join us would say, um, okay, um, I, I'd like to join PKB. It sounds like a nice company, but I have to tell you, I'm quite nervous because I've worked at an office most of my life. It's the first time I do a remote job. Um, and, and we actually tried to put off people during the interview about coming and joining us um, mm. because not everybody enjoys uh, remote work. Um, but for a certain kind of person, the sweet spot, and we really want that person. But I've had so many people... Um, who joined us before COVID say this is the closest team they've ever felt close to working to, even though they're physically very far away from each other. Um, and the reason for that is um, if you're not 
using the physical proximity as sure that will take care of culture or just come you have to explicitly work on the relationship building and the team building then you do it properly uh, and so um, we we work on that very intensively um, and we've built up different habits of doing that over time um, but but the way it started um, for me was I had a few observations as I was coming back from the States to the UK in 2008. Um, one was um, I was starting a company and a family and I knew that both of them were stressful. E each of them was stressful. So both of them would be doubly stressful. Uh, and I, th I just need to get rid of any other stress I can from my life uh, because I would like to be with my children. Um, so the commute was one of them. Um, and because I'd built up my technology skills and my wiki skills i knew i could operationalize that um but then i also knew two other things so the company i had worked for with, with the wikis um they recruited incredible i mean their, their their pipeline of hires was amazing all ivy league uh graduates straight out of uni they would um pick them to be bright workaholics and we would just go straight we really loved the work we would spend the hours and we just and their mean age was uh, 28 so having found these amazing people and trained them up so so well um they'd get they'd get married and half of them the women would have a baby and say, come back and say can i work part-time and can i work from home and the that company didn't have the managerial skills to work with someone remotely and part-time so they would just lose half their employees mm. um of a very high caliber group of people and the second observation i had uh, a story i knew was um in the 1980s uh citibank uh noticed that although women were coming up to 50 percent of mba places they weren't getting anywhere near the number of job offers as the men were so they set up a unit um, to specifically make job offers to those women. And, and by the way, this is Citibank. This is not a this is not a tree hugging company. This is a there is a market mm -hmm. opportunity yeah, in this talent that everybody else is missing out on. Um, and I don't know. And so they began hiring them. I don't know if you noticed, but in 2021 during COVID, the first major Wall Street bank to have a female CEO was Citibank. And it wasn't because mm -hmm. they were trying to um, push women ahead. All they did was they had a very deep bench of women from graduate yeah. school, and then it's it's quality wins. Um, and because they had such a deep bench and they hung on to them, one of them became CEO. Matter of time. Okay. So I thought um, if I could start PKB and work from home, I could be with my family. But also there must be at least some other people in my situation, and maybe I can recruit them even though I can't afford them if I let them work from home. And in particular, I could get some mums. Um, we ended up hiring a lot of dads. Um, mm -hmm. So the enduring team was full of dads uh, who were sort of at the top of their game in, say, London, didn't want to commute anymore, had, it, had a baby coming, they could work for us. Uh, and then uh, our customers loved it. So our customers loved that my colleague is working next to the hospital rather than next to me. So they're in that hospital working with the clinicians and the front lines that that's what they want that what the customer wants not sat in the office with me doing culture um so and then we began hiring people from wherever they were any postcode in 
in Europe. The thing we cared about in the end, we settled on the time zone is what matters. At the moment, at our current yeah. size, which is about 90 people, we try and get um, European African time zone. Um, but geographic location, we don't care about. Um, and then we do some things to compensate for. Um, you, you do actually need to just see someone every now and then. But the act of seeing someone is about now I would like to be friends with you. It's not I'd like to do a meeting with you or I need cascades and training. Um, so before COVID, we used to meet every two months in London. We bring everyone in the company. Mm -hmm. And honestly, all I wanted for is for everyone to go down to the pub and have a drink and a, and, mm -hmm. a, and, and a meal. But people wouldn't believe that. And they would say, well, um, no, no, it's got to be about work. So we'd, I'd have to create all this sort of fake program of lectures. Mm. By our, I, mean, I mean, our own employees gave incredibly interesting lectures to each other. They loved learning mm. from each other. Mm. But, I, but I was doing that just so we can go out for the pint. Mm. And, after, and then during COVID, everyone missed each other. And they realized, oh, actually, you know what? Just sitting down and having a pint, with, that's what I really miss about PKB. Mm. And so now we have um, every year one week in which everyone in the company flies out into a new city and the only point is to just eat and drink and do stuff together and we organize all these activities that are people choose which one to do and so they end up in random uh combinations of people so they end up uh with people they that aren't in their functional team so you then end up people building friendships across teams and it's fascinating to see in the following weeks people now feeling comfortable to talk to others from it. So you explicitly do the work around the building the culture. And when you're not explicitly doing that, there's no implicit come to the office because culture. No, <laughs> let's make the company very efficient and respect people's time so they can be with their families. Uh, they can travel, they can go on holiday. Um, I've, I've had people who are able to spend time with their parents who are in hospital mm. um, and still um, either either they're, they're off or they work as a distraction for themselves where they're by their parents' bedside. You respect people's um, time and flexibility and agency and you give them that as the default. Uh, and when you think there is an actual value add of physically being together, you make sure it really counts and you plan it very explicitly. And, and so th those are the things we've learned over, over 15 years. Mm. Have you had people try and argue that with you? Have you had people that, can't quite compute it. You must know business leaders. You must know uh, many people that run businesses and in the city. And there must there must be people that have, that disagree with you on this. What's the what's the most common? Yeah, what's the most common argument against this? Like, what do what do people try and tell you that you're not doing right? Because I'm assuming that they do. Yeah. So I, I will I will say that the majority of them I don't try and explain to them because the last thing I want is for them. I, I get a wider pool of people who are basically being poorly treated if they don't fix their companies. So I, I don't care if they understand. The, the one group I cared about understanding was investors. Um, oh, that's true. Because in the early days, uh, and, and right. So in the early days, um, investors would say, yeah, "When we give you, when you raise a proper round, you all you have a proper office and be a proper company, right?" Mm. Uh, and it was only in 2012, so four years in, we it took us four years by which we raise our first angel rounds. We we were eking a living for a long time just for their own savings mm. um and that investment round had the co-founder of mysql uh the cto of the database company which built open Very source nice. yeah uh, and he said to me we were distributed from day one 
uh, we were distributed even after we were bought by Sun for a billion dollars, and it's still distributed now. Oracle's got it, right? So 100% you can be distributed and global. Um, and by the way, um, we didn't have Skype like you kids do. Right? So <laughs> the tools you have for working remote are amazing, right? Um, but he said, you're going to have to make a choice. Either you're fully remote or you're fully in the office. Because if you have it hybrid, what every CEO is doing right now, because mm -hmm. they can't make a commitment, Commit, yeah. um, you will um, you will get the worst of both worlds. So basically he says, if you have an office where some people come in, the people who are at home will realize that all the decisions are being made by the people who are next to each other. And that will annoy them. And the people who have traveled into the office will hate the people who are joining on Zoom because they're having to, you know, speak in a microphone, speak in a louder voice. And, and, and I tried this. I had uh, one week I had my, uh, my colleague, a CTO. Uh, he, was, um, he was American, married to a Sri Lankan, so obviously he was living in France. And he came to see me in Cambridge for one week. Uh, and I said, you know, let, let, let's do a meeting together now, now that you're here. And so I did a meeting with him and three other engineers who were remote. And the engineers were saying, we can't hear you guys. And basically just the act of him physically being next to me your voice dips. It's really strange, but just you default to that. Mm. So now I've got two choices, either shouting at my neighbor so my colleagues can hear me or talking in a normal voice and my colleagues can understand. So make a choice, either you're doing all remote or all in the office. You can't make it work with both. You're kind of copping out on your duties as a manager to architect how everyone's going to work together. You have to set these rules and you have to put all the tools in place for everyone to benefit from it rather than actually i'm not going to buy the software is it really worth it no it is worth it it makes everyone work more smoothly together you have to make these commitments and investments fascinating i feel like i feel like you could teach people on this i feel maybe you have done i i'll tell you the one teaching that we do do um so the only way this works by the way is that the company is highly transparent uh so um, for example, my meeting notes that our senior leadership team, when we have meetings, um, the majority of them, we publish them instantly. Uh, every meeting is available to everyone in a wiki that everyone can see. Right. Um, our documentation about how the software works, including its bugs, by the way, um, I make sure our staff write it in a public wiki so everyone can see it rather than being you don't have to sign an NDA. You don't need a password. It's available on Google. Anyone can see it. Um, that is very uncomfortable for most people as they join the company that level of transparency they've never seen that before they enjoy it eventually but in the beginning transparency implies accountability and that's very stressful but because we live that every day it means we help our customers who are really stressed by the transparency of the patient seeing the records because the records are full of errors and they get really their instinct is okay i won't show the data to the patient until i fix the errors and we have to tell them, you won't fix the errors until the patient sees the data. And I understand your discomfort because I've gone through it myself. I'm not mm. just preaching through you ideologically. Each of us has gone through that discomfort of, I think I'm going to get told off for this when people write, find out I've made a mistake. But I'm still going to be transparent about it because that is the fastest way to fix things. Mm. And we're all trying to do the right thing. And actually, we're all nice to each other in that process. And, mm. and the patients actually are nice to their doctors when they find They just say, can you fix this, please? Mm. Um, and of course, when you realize, you know, that's the wrong leg. I'm not taking that medication, all these things. Healthcare is safer and less stressful. But that transparency, you have to live it. And then we try and teach it.
So you've talked about some of the, the technical bits of patients know best there. Let's start at the beginning of patients know best. Talk to me about the idea and talk to me about turning that idea into MVP and reality. So the idea is that if all the data about a person was in one record that was with the person and owned by the person and included data from the person because uh, 80% of healthcare spending is on chronic conditions. So 80% of healthcare delivery is by the patient. It's the patient is the latest and largest healthcare provider. Healthcare hasn't understood that. I'm the one injecting myself. I'm the one changing my diet or not. I'm the one doing the exercise or not. What I do matters a lot more than what my doctor does for the majority of healthcare spending. So if what I do matters the most, uh, I need data. I need to look at my information so I can understand what I need to be doing and what's happening. Um, and then if I have the data, I am the de facto integrator across all the healthcare settings. So as healthcare becomes more specialized and more fragmented, the only continuity is the patient. So even if the patient doesn't look at the data, if they bring the data, that makes every interaction higher quality, lower cost, more safety. So what if you had one record that followed you and had everything and activated you as well as made you safe? That's the idea. Uh, and it's not a new idea. Um, anyone who's had any healthcare experience thinks mm -hmm that needs to exist. Um, the problem is getting everyone to agree on one place for that to happen. And for all that aggregation, uh, all these people have to contribute to release the data in their basements to this one system that's transparent and immediate and accurate in real time. There's a lot of people that have to agree. It's a coordination problem, it's not a technology problem. So the MVP, as you're saying, James, was how do I convince, where do I start proving that working. Uh, so the way I started was I um, began cold calling uh, anyone who I thought was doing uh, difficult, complex work, so especially rare diseases. Uh, so I found out about this uh, doctor called Susan Hill in Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, she was looking after 35 children with intestinal failure. So for any of a number of reasons, they couldn't eat food through their mouth. They had to have it in a tube in their heart. And when that child goes to their local A&E department, they are the first child that doctor has ever seen with that disease. They don't know what to do. The person who knows the most is the mum, and no one listens to the mum. So instead, they fax Great Ormond Street Hospital, who fax back, and there is delay in diagnosis and delivery for that, for that child. So she said to me, Susan, I, I, I worry about this. And I can see in her face, she does genuinely worry about each of those children. I said, okay, so what would you like to do? She says, well... I'd like to send the letters that I currently post to the GPs or the patients. I'd like to send them in PKB. I said, okay, I mean, you know, you could do test results, you could do symptom tracking, care planning. All you want to do is just attach a Word document and send it on a website. I said, yes, I'd like to do that, please. Because I don't think the doctors actually get the letters and the letters get lost in the post for the patients. I'd like to just start. I said, okay, fine. The next day she calls me and she says, I posted five letters through Patients Know Best. And one of the mums replied to me saying, there's an error in the letter. She said, there's, I've been a consultant for 10 years. No one's corrected my letters. I know they're full of errors, just no one corrects them. Um, but because it was easy for the mum to message me back, she corrected me. So then she says, right, what else can I send? Because the faster I give 
data to those families, the faster they can fix all the problems and the safer these children will be. So in the beginning, it was all about finding doctors like her who didn't see the errors, the, the identification of errors as a problem, they saw it as a solution and they embraced uh, that data sharing. One of her children, as she became an adult, went to St. Mark's Hospital and a guy, her consultant, Dr. Simon Gabe, um, Susan gave Simon access to that young lady's record. And he instantly saw everything that had been happening between Gosh and that family for several years. And he calls me and he says, right, I want that for all my 300 adult patients. Uh, and then he said, I'll go further. I want automatic release of test results. So he did that without anyone. Um, he got the IT department to agree to it, but nobody else above that knew. And so the, these patients were getting all the data real time before anybody else. I, I heard from one of the patients that the nurses in the hospital were coming to her bed to find out what her test result was because it was faster to get it off the patient's phone from PKB than to wait by the nursing station at the old computer and try and download it, right? So these patients were seeing things real time. And we just did that, um, lots of tiny deployments, tiny cash, until in 2015, uh, some, um, Northwest London came to us and said, we need to do something for all 2.4 million people. Um, and they had extreme problems with data sharing. They had 16 hospitals, 400 GP surgeries, and the average GP in London, 20% of their patients change every 12 months because Londoners move. They travel, they change jobs, they change country. So it's very difficult. And, and, and they also, if they have two doctors, they'll, they'll be in two different hospitals. They won't cho choose the same hospital. They're very picky. So you need the data sharing, but at that scale, you can only do the data sharing if the patient knows about it and approves it. So the only way is if there was a record with the patient that then was authorized to have that. So they said to me, can you do this at scale? And I said, well, go and talk to Chell West and St. Mark's Hospital. They're there, and then there's others. Uh, and they said, okay. Um, they, they did, they did, and to their credit, they were about to buy from uh, a very large American company is the only possibility. But then they came in, so actually PKB was a much more scalable model. And they did a 108 degrees turn and went went for PKB. Um, and then a year later, they switched on a million test results a week. And just the, 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 the flood of data began coming in. And then the rest of the UK and then the rest of the world has been learning from what they've done. But that's how it started. We just got one doctor to do it with 35 children. We've got a few others who are early adopters to do that. And then our big break was in 2015, the, the first population where the patients were given the control over the data. Wow. I'm intrigued now because what you're talking about is, for want of a better phrase, like a best case scenario where, and you're right, it's not, it's not a, a, a new problem this has been talked about a long time, not least because you guys have been solving it for a long time. Um, but there are many players in this market trying to do similar. And so I'm interested in your opinion on this of what does, what does, like, why, what, why is it that this isn't solved on mass? Why is it? Because there'll be people listening to what you've just said that just think, okay, well that exists and that sounds great, but I went to the hospital yesterday and I went to just a slightly different A&E than normal, which was a mile away, and they didn't have a clue what I, what my allergies were and they almost gave me penicillin. Um, so so I, I guess 
with what you know and the scale that you have achieved, the scale that you're looking at, what is actually the route to this being just solved? Like, what is the route to that? And where are we now when you zoom out and look at it nationally, when you look at it globally? Where are we with this? And how, how soon is it that this is solved for everybody? So the, the difficulty with a coordination problem is that in healthcare, no one can say yes and anyone can say no. Yeah. So you have to get rid of all the no's before you can agree to proceed. Uh, and and that, is, that is really difficult. So the, um, the stage we're at now um, is we've got contracts covering uh, a quarter of the UK population. Uh, we've, read, we've got 3 million patients who access their records. Uh, wow. They get 20 million test results every month that we're released to them. Um, the, the, the changes that happen for us right now in terms of how to, how to move this for the rest of the country and the world is what happened during COVID was every region realized um, it would have been better if more, data, more patients had more data more quickly. You know, you can't come to hospital because of COVID, but you still have cancer, you still have diabetes, you must know what you've got. And the second thing is they wanted one system across all the providers. Uh, and it had to work with the national infrastructure like NHS Login and NHS App. So as they came out of COVID, they're rolling procurements for people saying, okay, I need to give the patient the record and I need to do it at the regional level and it joined up with the NHS. And when they do that, we basically win those procurements because it's proven, it's safe, it's scalable. And we've got all the functionality that all the no's uh, are neutralized. Um, but to get to that uh, took a lot of work. And in particular, because the problem is so difficult, everybody else's approach, they take the easy way. Uh, and, and there's several easy ways you can do it, but all the easy ways are not scalable. And, and we did the hard way, which was incredibly lengthy to set up. But when you do, suddenly works incredibly scalable. So the easy ways are, look, I'm not going to convince my other providers to do the same thing. I'm just going to have a portal for my for my right my patients and my institution so there's a gp portal or a hospital portal right um so you know my chart from epic isn't actually my chart it's my hospital's chart right and if i get another hospital they'll have their own system um another approach is to say let's do this at um disease level so i'm going to have something for diabetes and i'll build another system for kidney disease but diabetics get kidney disease mm. why are you making them two sites uh, another one is to say, well, let's do a regional database. But, uh, you know, Hampshire, which started doing this, people from all over the world travel to Hampshire and people in Hampshire travel all over the world. And because Hampshire is so small, it's too small for anyone else to integrate with. Um, you just create another silo. Or some of them said, let's do a transit, let's do a point booking or uh, prescription renewal, those kind of transactions. Well, that's great. But every one of those has its own system. And also, there's not a lot of value of just the transaction. You, really want, you haven't activated the patient. If you had everything starting from one system, uh, the, the, the patient keeps on logging to the same system, you get much more engagement for every one of those transactions that they start from the one place. And the fifth one was, you know, when I started in 2008, everyone thought the consumer would solve this. So Google and Microsoft and even NHS uh, built their own uh, platform where the consumer would do that. But all that that did was... The consumer entered their own data and that created a new silo which was completely separated from the health record. The physicians wouldn't use that system with the patient. So 
these sort of five silos that the institution, the disease, the region, the transaction and the consumer, um, each of them is easy in the first two years. You can get a small budget to get a small deployment. But by going down that path, you alienate everybody else. The other institutions won't use your institutional portal. The other diseases won't use your disease portal and so on. Where we said, no, the architecture is everything's going to go to one system. And we're going to make it as uh, nice as possible for everyone trying to do the hospital approach or the kidney approach and so on. We'll make it good for them. But we are it's got to work together from day one, because uh, once you do, then the promised land will come. At some point, everyone will realize, oh, I need this. And it does exist. And what I would say is in the 21st century, you can't run your country if your citizenry at least some of them aren't able to look after themselves. Not everyone, and you want to free up capacity for the vulnerable, but people who can look after themselves. Uh, you know, if I take up a hospital day, a hospital bed for a day, instead of injecting myself, mm. um, the NHS can't continue to fund everyone. But if I can look after myself, that is tremendous. When the NHS taught di dialysis patients to do dialysis at home, that freed up tremendous capacity. Um, the only way to afford a 21st century healthcare system is that at least some of the people can look after themselves. And the only way to do that, if you have one record that's with that patient. Is it fair to say then that the the more sort of point and shoot solutions for this that, that don't go, that don't run as deep as you guys, is it fair to say that you're not particularly bothered by that or even that's actually potentially quite positive for you because by the time that the government wants to come in of that country and say well okay let's flick this on for everybody then you're the ones with the infrastructure to do that and so actually these people are just creating the market for you to eventually come in and solve for arguably is that fair completely and so we like these other companies we, we don't just um tolerate them ideal we actually like, like outsource salesforce for you basically like long long game so we focus on a very broad um but very narrow solution which is this is your infrastructure layer of the of the record that's going to go with you across all providers and all your life yeah but there's a thousand things you need to do that you have to be very deep on so booking an appointment tracking your mm. diabetes understanding which inhalers you take as a child versus an adult. Right? Mm. And so for all these things, we have APIs to work with the other parties and we have the scale that the other parties are happy working with us. They can see they're benefiting and we're benefiting. We look good to our customers, they look good to their customers. Um, so as, as an example of a point booking that you're talking about, um, Doctor Doctor and Patients Their Best have integrated. So nice. there are customers who use both of us and uh, they can see the appointment in PKB and there's a button saying, change or cancel the appointment and that launches doctor doctor you you get all the clever stuff that they do and then you get back into pkb and all the update is in there um we've got companies like test card which are you do home urinalysis testing um and we're joining them up with the uk kidney association which has all the kidney dialysis data for all 72 hospitals uh, all the departments in the uk so they all get joined up using pkb in the middle and, and there's a thousand of these and there'll be a million more of them as you get all the innovation in health tech. So my, my job is to liberate the data from the silos, from the basements, and put it in the hand of the patients so that the, the real innovators can come in and deliver you know, the leaps and bounds, the Moore's law to healthcare. Mm. That, that, that's what we're trying to achieve with these partners. 
I love that, man. And like, man, I I sound like a broken record on this podcast at the minute. The amount of times in the last 10 episodes that I've mentioned deep infrastructure changes just being the answer. Um, This is yet again, someone that's actually focused on the deep infrastructure change that the more point and shoot stuff can sit on that the APIs can come into. Like it, it, these are the deep infrastructure changes that we need and they have needed to be built over time. They have needed to gain trust. They have needed to develop technologically. They have needed to achieve scale. They have needed to be understood by so many different groups and so many senior people of different groups. To your point about how many, how many people you need to stop saying no and then convert them into a yes. You know, it, it, it has been a game of that for quite a long time. And, when, we, when we're talking about data and we're talking about this federated data platform that's now just gone to Palantir and all these different things, like th- there's there's these deep infrastructure things that may or at least stand a chance of really changing things in health tech and digital health. And it seems like an exciting time for those reasons that these things do seem to be getting through now. There do seem to be these changes that could facilitate almost this next phase of health tech and digital health, which I think... I think is exciting for me. I'm apprehensively excited about it, I guess, that it feels like there could be a change now because I think goodness knows we need it. I think there is the kind of the hype of the large language models and the AI starting to mature in different areas. And we are seeing AI solving actual problems now in various different ways. Um, and then there's the, I'd say the, the hype of, of LLMs and stuff that can go on and give us this temporary dopamine hit in the sector to be like, oh, things might be okay. Actually, no, they're probably not. That's terrible. Um, but these deep infrastructure things are the kind of like baseline happiness that I have for like, no, there's quite a lot that could come through here now. And there will be a new generation of entrepreneurs that build on top of this. And actually the, the, the platforms like Patients Know Best will be soon, I think, these the legacy platforms that actually have the infrastructure that can change everything and so i am excited for that reason there is one thing that i wanted to talk to you about just moving on slightly which is that i know when when you and i have chatted previously we've talked about you mentioned actually being a dad and you meant and you mentioned attracting as patients know best um you attract attracting dads and I've talked a lot on this podcast um, about women's health and about femininity. We talked about about being a woman in business and all that side of things. I've not talked about fatherhood and business. I've not I've not explored this. And I know that this is an interest of yours and, and something that you've got experience in from the people that you hire and also personally yourself. Um, I think there is an interesting tension between the two of those words, entrepreneurship and fatherhood. And actually you put it really well earlier, I think, when you said, when you, you mentioned having a family and entrepreneurship and both are going to be stressful and actually the two together might develop a new level of stress, but that you knew as the type of father that you wanted to be, that you wanted to stay at home. Now, I think, you know, as Jess and I talk about getting married next year and having a family and that kind of thing, I'm starting to explore this a bit myself. And there's this tension, I think, between the more traditionalist version of being a father and being a breadwinner and going out to win the money and bringing it back to the family and that whole thing about, you know, maternity and paternity leave and maternity leave being a year and paternity leave being two weeks. And a strange tension as as a man 
as it were, more traditional masculine man with more traditional beliefs, you might think that that is your role to go out and win and you, you shouldn't care about the baby as much. Or I don't know, there's these strange narratives that I sort of feel, I guess, and that they, they produce this tension in me of, well, sh- am I meant to love work? Am I meant to love work over my family? Am I, am I meant to kind of pretend I don't like the baby and that I really want to go and win more money as at work and entrepreneurship? Like, do, am I, am I meant to prefer that? And am I meant to not? So it's, I think it's a strange time of transition where I'm so glad that in the public discourse that we can now talk more freely as a man about things that aren't so traditionally masculine about what you want for your life. And I like that. I like the ability to be able to talk about this stuff, but as somebody that's walked this line and as somebody who has successfully got a business and the family, I guess my first question to kick this off, do you, do you have to sacrifice one for the other as a man? That's what I've been told. Um, <laughs> but conversely, what, what I'd seen, I, I really did not want that to be true. So um, we started the company in 2008 and in 2009 we won investment from Seedcamp. And as part of the sort of award ceremony, they had this founder speaking. He'd um, sold his company. He was talking about living the dream. So he sold his company mm. and he went around the world for a year on a yacht with his uh, family. They loved it. He spent time with his kids and so on. Uh, so, so I said to him, you know, it's fantastic that he did that. Um, at the time, my wife was um, pregnant with twins. Um, and But how did you manage to spend time with your family before you sold the company? And he said, I'm afraid you can't. You're going to have to choose between fatherhood and starting the company because it is all-consuming um, you will not be able to, you will be traveling. You can't be with your children, which I would say, and he said, which I'm really sad about, but that's why I'm glad at least I got the exit and I could spend that year. I got, I got to learn who my children are and so on. And, and, and I left that meeting really upset. Um, the other thing I knew is, um, because I, I make very long-term plans. And so I always knew I was going to start a company. So in the meantime, I was sort of doing a syllabus for myself, just following friends and seeing what choices they've made and so on and i knew too many friends and founders um who were divorcing and it's the and it's the, it's the wife who's divorcing the husband and a lot of the dynamic that seemed to happen is um they, they loved each other they had a child and from pure logistics uh of you know the physical baby and the maternity being longer than paternity uh, not, not just as an administrative thing, but just physically, you have to be with the baby more as a woman in the early early months. Um, the woman takes more time off, um, and therefore, the man's career advances a bit more, just a fraction more. Mm. But when you come back to work at every stage, that family's got to choose between do they earn more money from the man than the woman can because she's a bit behind. And so at every stage, they make a micro decision of, well, let's just carry on with the man because it's better for the family. After several years, you get the woman who's who's highly talented and professional and she's now at home and she's pissed off mm. and she asks for a divorce. Um, and conversely, um, you know, the, the man's response when, when that baby comes and um, you're stressed about how we're going to feed the family is you overcompensate and you just get on the road more, you work longer hours because you're just trying to earn more money. You're doing it out of love. But again, over years, you've pissed off your wife and you've lost contact with your child. So I didn't want that to happen. Uh, and so part of setting up PKB Virtual was to, on most days, I will be home uh, in the evening if I'm traveling. 
and as often as possible i don't need to travel i'm going to work from home and in the beginning as as my wife you've got the twin girls um and, and you know it's it's so exhausting um having uh, twins let alone one child and uh what can i do around the house to pick up um I remember a few years later, I spoke to a GP from Kent um, and we're chatting about this. And, and he said, um, you know, the trick, Mo, because it's, it's unfair that the women can breastfeed. They get to be they get tighter <laughs> with their kids. The trick is if you can do the nighttime bottle feed, that's your chance to get. And I said, yes, that's what happened with me as well. <laughs> so it, it gave her more more um, more time to rest. But also it, it's your chance to connect. So you can do things if you're mm. deliberate about it. And a lot of the remote work was actually allowing that to happen um, and, and just being with your family and just making for the long term. Uh, so I, I do think the common wisdom is you're going to have to choose between them in the same way that the common wisdom is uh, work from home doesn't work. Um, but I think actually if you're deliberate and plan it, um, not, not only can it be done, but it's, it's just wonderful. It's really nice to hear. And to pull back to the conversation that you had with the guy that exited i think there's a really important clarifying point here which is that when he meant when he gave his advice and and his answer to your question which was that uh you can't you have to choose i think the 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 missing bit there for me is for him he couldn't. It yes. didn't work for yes. him. Spot on. And you've got to be really careful, I think, that, you know what? I actually had this conversation the other day. I've actually had this a, a couple of times that you've got to be careful on a panel when you're giving a talk. When, you, when you've been around in the health tech space for so long, you hear a lot of the same advice given on panels, a lot of the same context removed, short things that you say, short answers, because you're trying to fulfill a role on that panel to deliver very actionable advice very quickly and that kind of thing. And unfortunately, a lot of media and a lot of communications is is set up, particularly at the moment with, with the TikTokification of yes. platforms and things. Everything is set up for the very shortened version of what the answer is. Just get me to the answer. I just want the answer. I don't want to listen to the context. I just want the answer. But the concept that I think has really come to front of mind for me recently has been the survivor bias, the survivorship bias, the the bias of individuals that have got the success that think that every single thing that they did and chose yes, resulted yes. in that success. And it's like not every decision that that gentleman made will have contributed to his success, his exit, his year that he could have sailing around the world with his family. And to throw it out there, the question remains for me, what would that gentleman's life, that gentleman's happiness long-term throughout his life, what would it, what would those things have looked at, uh, looked like had he not have made the choice between one or the other and incorporated both? Now, the answer is we don't know. The answer is we don't know. And so I do not think it is fair or reasonable to categorize advice to anyone because nobody really truly knows what is going on for that person with the short vignette that they've given 
even that per you know I, I get asked a lot should i leave medicine what point should i leave medicine if i want to do xyz the answer is i don't know the truth is i don't know the truth is i can't possibly know because no matter how much you subscribe to the deterministic view that if i just receive as much information possible i can predict going full circle chaos you know a determinist would say if we can learn everything we can predict everything um even those chaotic interactions between every atom on earth we could predict if we know everything i don't like we're just not there i don't know enough about your life to give that advice but what i can do is tell you my experience and explain to you the decisions yes. i made based on the information i had and what that led to with the opportunities that were given to me i can give you that context and i'm happy to give you that context what i'm not happy to do is tell you to do anything i'm not happy to draw conclusions that i don't think are relevant and valid and I think this is a really interesting one and one that I, I, I think is so important that we address here, you and I, because to put the pressure on a father to choose between child and business and whatever the sacrifice they make of those two defines them as a man, I think is so incredibly toxic and dangerous for a generation of entrepreneurs that could make a real difference to people's lives in health tech. I think it is so important that we address this and we make this point that you are a man that chose both. You spoke to a man that chose one that had a version of success, but I imagine you could speak to a hundred thousand, a million, a billion others that chose something different in between, in somewhere in that area between one and zero or one and like A and B, you know, people that chose all of those eventualities that were both successful and not, I think the key is choosing what's right for you. But let's make it incredibly clear. I, I do not think it is a, it is a choice between one or the other for success. I, I think that is a very personal thing of what success looks like to you and what you're going to make work. Um, I don't know if any of that resonates. Everything you said, it, it, with one caveat, uh, James, I hope that you do do a TikTok channel um, that, that I can watch um, about our sound bites. But um, you, you're spot on correct from the meta point, which is when someone says you can't, what they mean is I don't know how to. Yes. So, and it's fine if no one seems to know how to go and look for the person who knows. And in the meantime, don't take I can't as being true. Um, but just on that uh, fatherhood point. Um, so again, as I as I looked at my at, at other people and other founders, um, my job wasn't just to look after, just enjoy my time with my with my girls, um, but it was also to get my wife working as quickly as possible, the same hours that I was working, so that we never have to choose between her not working and me not working. We're both intelligent professionals. Um, my job is to get her back to work and dial down my work if that's what's required, because um, that's what we all want uh, for the future. I think that's beautiful, Mohammed. I think that's a, a wonderful, a wonderful sentiment, a wonderful story, and uh, just a, a wonderful conclusion for us to end on. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I, I think learning everything about PKB, actually le learning about your values and how that ran through the the creation of the company, I think has been really interesting. This this grounding that you have in respect for individuals, respect for time, and and 
therefore building a platform that gives people those two things back ownership over their data so that they can choose what they do with it i think is incredibly respectful place to be in healthcare and i think giving them that time back is clearly respectful of their time as well as for the clinicians and everybody else involved that can actually make more appropriate and informed decisions about people's health i think that's a a wonderful a wonderful uh way that your values have have come into uh, something now in the world that helps give other people um, those benefits. So it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, for people that want to learn more about you or about uh, PKB, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, James, it's been an honour to be on your podcast. Thank you. Um, PatientsNoBest.com is the best way for people to uh, learn about us. And uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to follow me uh, or contact me. I, I, either my um at idiopathic uh, account or um at patients know best as a company account on linkedin lovely uh mohammed thank you for joining me hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content